0: Your Bibles to uh, 1 John, chapter 3. Continuing our study, taking a lot of time over the past few weeks trying to grasp the richness of John's teachings on the kind of love that should characterize all believers and should exist between us. It's a very rich section, very deep. John, John is the apostle of love and uh, in a sense that's his life theme and it's certainly the theme of so much of this book. We've talked about the purpose and structure of 1 John in the past but I'm going to kind of review it again because we haven't done it too much lately. So let's get our bearings as he opens up this new section in chapter 3. By the way, the title of the sermon in your bulletin is incorrect. That's last week's sermon. I'm not preaching the same sermon. I just forgot to change it. So um, John wrote this letter to help churches understand what a real Christian is. And the event that happened, as you remember, was that so many people had left to join a cult. And um, people were kind of shaken by that. So when we talk about real, what is a real Christian? We mean a saved person, a a born-again person, born of the Spirit, children of God by His grace, real children. As far as God is concerned, what God would look upon as someone is real. That's what we're talking about. So um, John focuses on three areas that explain this or give us some definition to what a real Christian is. And we call them tests, um, tests of authentic Christianity. And we've had three of them. One was obedience uh, or maybe a better test is called the righteousness test. True Christians strive to please God with their lives. That's one test. The love test was the second one. True Christians love one another. The third test was a doctrinal test. True Christians know and embrace who Jesus is, who he really is, who the Scripture says he is. The true God in human flesh who came to save us from our sins. That's who Jesus is. John taught through those three tests um, in chapter two, and in chapter three, he started another round. He started going through them again using slightly different language and different terminology and using contrasts, righteousness versus sin and love versus hate, and that's how he's been working it. The first time he talked about love, he, he followed it up with a, a special section. So it was like he's doing the test, he gets to love, and then he explains that, and then he stops for a minute to, to say more. And that's in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I'm, I'm writing to you. These are words of comfort. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So it's all very positive, very good. But it reflects different stages in spiritual growth. And they're, they're all God's own. He, he, those, they're his people. They all know God. He wrote that because he was worried that um, setting this very real standard for what it means to be a real Christian might discourage some hearts. And so he wanted to assure them of their place with Christ because of their faith. So he calls them little children and fathers and um, young men, you know all in the Lord. Remember he said in chapter 2 verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now that's kind of scary because we're not all that great sometimes, right? We're not all that holy. So for one that's weak in the faith, it might make them say, well, is that me? Or am I one of the blinded ones? Because I don't, I've acted with anger. I've, I've thought the worst about someone before instead of giving them grace. So he writes verses 12 through 14 uh, to assure them that he's confident that their faith is very real. That's in chapter 2. They've, they've not failed the test. And if they've stumbled, they're forgiven. That's what he wants them to know. But he doesn't want his point to get lost either. So there's always this tension between making people um, frustrated because the standard is so high. But also you've got people who, oh yeah, whatever the standard is. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I don't care. But I just do whatever I want. So you've got both of those things going on. So he's, he's being really careful, very pastoral here. So he added encouragement to the love test for purposes of clarity so they would know that they really are God's people even if they fail sometimes. He's gonna do exactly the same thing in our text today in chapter three starting at verse 18. He has strongly stated the love test again which we've labored through over the past several weeks and he's pausing to encourage those who fear that they may have come up short on the love test. He's made it pretty stark There's a stark description of hate contrasted with Christian love. If you look at chapter 3, verse 15, it's a bit jolting here. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And that is... To be sure, a very exalted view of Christian love. That is what we are to be. That is what is supposed to characterize us. That should define us. That love, that kind of love, is the mark of Christ in us. But who can sit through that and all the teaching we've done on love and not think of times when they have failed in love? Anybody feel that way in the last few weeks as we've gone through this? I see a couple of nodding heads there. Yeah, I I certainly... Immediately think of times that I've failed in love. These words, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Well, yeah, we ought. But how many times have I not done that when I should have done that, right? I can think of many times I didn't. And some of them actually are very painful to remember with those times when I didn't. Because I hurt somebody. We've all failed in love, but as Christians, we should know that we can rest in God's forgiveness because we do believe. We believe in and we do love the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where he's headed today. Some people really have a hard time receiving God's forgiveness. And so he's talking comfort today. And for some people, it's just kind of temperament. Some people are more melancholy or their disposition is naturally negative and um, looking down on themselves. For other people, they might have been in, raised with or experienced a lot of guilt imposed on them from people over them, important people in their lives, maybe parents or some other people. And it's kind of hard to let that go. They always have felt sort of under it, you know, the pressure and the burden and the cloud of judgment that's been on them and all kinds of situations. It's hard for them to accept God's love because they've been told so long that they're not worthy of it. Other people have done some really horrible things, and they they know it, and they're wondering if God can really forgive them for those kind of things. So it's a very good thing to deal with the reality of our sin and how vile it is. We should do that. We should recognize how vile our sin is. But it's not good. It's not good, and I'm glad it's Communion Sunday. It's not good to doubt that Christ's blood has washed away all of our sin. That's not a good thing to doubt. And for Christ's sake, God does not frown on us, but he sees us as righteous in Christ. That's how he looks at us. So we all need to fall back on Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. But some people have a really hard time resting in that. The love test is, When you look at it, it might make you doubt. Am I a real Christian? And John, he's an old pastor so he knows his words might bring doubts and self-condemnation, self-torments to some people and that's the last thing he wants to accomplish. It's often said that the preacher's job is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. By comfortable, they mean people that don't really see their need for a Savior and they don't take it very seriously and they need to be afflicted with God's holiness and judgment. They don't care about obeying him. But when we say comfort the afflicted, the afflicted are those who do see their need for Christ, that do see their sin in a real way and they seek him, but they doubt the completeness of his love for them, that God really does love me. And they need to be comforted. How could God love me? So they, people like that see the words that are describing a, new, a, a genuine Christian, a true Christian here, and those words are so lofty, and they're so aware that they haven't measured up to that, they haven't made it, they think, well, maybe I'm not genuine. And those dear people need the comforts of the gospel. They're afflicted, and they need the comfort of the gospel. So this added section in verses 18 through 24 is meant to be an encouragement and uh, to give you peace of mind. So verse 18 is kind of a bridge. It, it, fin- it finishes out this section, this section on love, and it's a transition. He actually uses the word truth to kind of turn into another um, section here uh, to address this self-doubt and this worry that we might not be measuring up. And he, he doesn't want them to feel that they've fallen short of God's grace. So he's working that. And the fact that, verse 18, how does he begin? It's the same way he began the other time when he talked about the love test. He calls them little children, which means they're God's children and they're his brothers in Christ. That little children thing, young in the Lord, disciples is what he's talking about. They must grow by, um, verse 18 says, by putting their actions over words. But they are true believers. They know the right things to say and now they have to just do it and commit to it. So verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You're saying all the right things. Let's apply it, start doing it, and let's be straight up about it. For a Christian, always, always, and in everything, you have to put into practice what you know is true. You have to put it into practice. Then from verse basically 19 to 24, John mentions various blessings that come when a Christian does practice love. So look for how John will bring comfort and peace into the hearts of his readers in this section here. He's addressing the Christian heart, our true self. What's that? You know when the Bible talks about your heart? Our culture is so different from Greek culture in terms of the use of language and the biblical ideas. We always think of our heart like Valentine's Day and love and, you know, sweetness and that kind of love, you know, like, oh, romantic love, my heart, you know. But in the Bible, the heart is where you think. See, we think thinking's in the brain, but in the Bible, the heart is your true self. It's your true person it's the deep place of your thinking and choosing how you view the world how you view reality how you view yourself all that's going on in your heart that's in in the bible that's what heart is all about so pay close attention to verse 19 because he tells us how how this love when you put it into practice gives us confidence in our walk with God it doesn't bring you down it lifts you up so he says we will know by this we will know by this, what's this? Well, if we love and deed and truth. Verse 18, so he's bouncing off that. Verse 19, we, know, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So you can be assured before God by sincere acts of love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But what about those times I fail? What about those times when my heart accuses me and says I'm not doing that? And when my memories of failure plague me? What about when my heart brings to mind these pretty rotten choices I've made? The failures of love. What if my heart, that center of my thinking and choosing, what if that place in me, the real me is just full of self-doubt? And, and fear, fear of God's displeasure, and the, uh, it's full of uncertainty about whether his love is available to me. What if I'm in that place? Well, that's a good question. And let me tell you one thing before we get deeper into this text here. Every Christian you will ever meet on earth is a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Anybody here done? <laughs> <laughs> ah, good, no raised hands. It's always embarrassing when somebody raises hand. <laughs> We're all a work in progress. And so are you. Wherever you are, you're a work in progress. So are we. So you learn from your failures. You don't camp on them and beat yourself up about them. If you know the Lord, the Holy Spirit has given you a capacity to love God's people. And as you do that, you will find assurance in your heart of God's love for you. That love in us is actually a wonderful way to know that God loves us. Just the way we are, despite our weaknesses and our failures. Because if you love somebody else despite their weaknesses and their failures, now you know what God's love is like. And it's working in you. Our love, when it's at its best, our love is a true reflection of God's love for us. So don't think of God as less loving than you are when you're gracious and forgiving and looking for the best in other people and building them up instead of tearing them down. When you do that, you'll have the assurance of God's love towards you, because that's what his love is like. So the more you practice love, the more you'll understand God's love. And it's the Holy Spirit that produces that love in us. So another advantage of that is when we serve other people, it takes the focus off of us. And we we worry more about the well-being of other people than our own feelings and things like that. That's really a freeing thing. It sets us free. So what matters, and uh, if what matters to me is loving God and loving his people, then I become less consumed with my fears and my doubts. So there's two things this love does for us in verse 19. It says, he says, we will know that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him. Before him means coming to him, coming to him when we pray, coming to him in worship. If you're coming to God when you pray, feeling his condemnation all the time, that's not right. Because that's not how he feels towards you. So when it says assure our heart before him. Whenever we approach him. It's really hard to pray. Or to worship God. If you feel that God is disapproving of you all the time. And he doesn't love you. That's a really hard thing to do. How do do you pray? When you pray in fear. You're worshiping but you're not acknowledging God's true character. Which is (coughs) grace and compassion for you. When you feel that way, you're actually shrinking God down and putting him in a box. A box built out of your own fears and insecurities and self-condemnation. That's why verse 20 is such a ray of hope. So don't stop at verse 19. Verse 20 finishes the thought here. So let me start at verse 19 and read them together. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart. And knows all things. So no matter how your heart is condemning you. No matter what it's telling you. No matter what you're feeling about things and yourself. God is greater than your heart. Isn't that good news? (laughs) He knows all things. So remember in scripture the heart is much more than your feelings. It's your thought center. It's It's where you reason things out. Our heart holds our world view. It's how we think. It's about ourselves, how we think about people around us, how we think about God. So if we keep God at a distance from us, then our heart can be in a very painful place, a tangled place, a a knotted place, if we don't understand him right. So the condemning heart, that's what John's talking about in verse 20 what does that do for your spiritual life? It robs you of joy. And takes away your peace that you're supposed to have in Christ. But you're destroying it out of yourself. Can you, can you imagine, how did Peter feel when he denied Jesus? <laughs> Just think about that. Peter the bold, the guy that's always speaking up. Re- reduced to this weeping, cowardly, humiliated, pathetic person. What did Jesus do with him? He just reminded him every single time of that terrible day. No, that's not what he did. He restored him. Jesus held nothing over Peter's head ever. In fact, you know, at the very end of Mark's gospel, I love this little moment. The the, the angel's giving a message to the women that have seen the the resurrected Jesus. And this is what the angel says. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. (laughs) He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. I could tell by your laughter that you caught it. (laughs) He tells, tell his disciples and Peter. Well, isn't Peter a disciple? Yeah, but he's way more bummed out than the other disciples. Way more. Pe- Peter's heart condemned him. Now I'm sure none of them felt really great about themselves. Maybe John because he did go to the, to the cross with Jesus' mother. But I, I don't think any of them felt really great about themselves after Jesus was arrested. But the message isn't tell the disciples and Andrew. That's not what the angel says. Tell the disciples and John. That's not what the angel says. Peter was humbled by his sin to the point of despair. And so the angel says, Tell Peter, make sure he's not left out. Make sure you tell Peter that Jesus wants to see him in Galilee. And so Peter goes to Galilee and Jesus restores him, welcomes him, makes sure he understands that he's okay. Many years later, when Peter wrote his letter, which we have in the New Testament, first Peter, this is what he says Peter himself, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. How could that cowardly, weeping, rooster-hearing guy (laughs) (laughs) write those words? Because it's true. God's mercy is great. Christ is bringing a living hope. Uh, We have an imperishable inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us. So that's a man that writes that in his letter there, the man that writes that knows that God loves him. He's not doubting that one little bit. And you should know it too. You should know. Our hearts hearts are too small, you know, sometimes. Sometimes they condemn us for things that God has left behind long, long time ago. He's already forgiven you for. God is greater than our heart. Our hearts can, can too narrowly focus on the wrong things, the negative things, the things that can cause this, uh, we, well, we've already mentioned some of these things, these painful realities of our lives that kind of can start consuming our thinking and they can lead us to kind of lock in a certain view of our own self, our own condition, our, even the world around us. We see it in a different way because of all that. But if we've confessed from the heart, Jesus as the risen Lord and received his mercy through his death on the cross, our hearts should not condemn us. Your heart is not in the right place if you're condemning yourself. Now look, if I've sinned as a believer, if I failed and I've blown it, then what do I do? Well, 1 John 1, 9, I confess it to the Lord. And if I confess it to the Lord, what did John say in chapter 1? He will forgive us. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. So he's not holding it over us. His forgiveness is without limit. It is absolute. So go to the Lord and received, receive your forgiveness. And then repair any damage you've done with other people that you may have sinned against. And, and when you do that it's over. It's over forever. Maybe the people won't forgive you but God will. And you're okay with him. So you can approach Him with confidence. If your heart condemns you, if your heart condemns you, is that the last word? Is your heart the last word on on these things? No, God's decision is the last word, right? God is greater than your heart. So we need to take the promises that we have in Scripture and apply them. We need to put those things in our hearts. Because when we're doing our thinking and and you know, trying to figure it all out, if you're not taking those scriptural truths into your heart, you're going to come out in a really bad place. But if you are, you're going to come out in a really wonderful place. Romans 8.1, what was that again? Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you take that and put it in your heart so that when your heart's wrangling with all this stuff, that's predominant, that's the truth of God, you're going to come out in a better place. No one in Christ is condemned. No one. So why is your heart condemning you? If God isn't, why why would you let it? Jesus actually said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a really hard time. That's not what he said. (laughs) He said, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I'll give you peace in your heart a heart at rest is not a condemning heart in fact a heart at rest is a thankful heart so when we take the Lord's table this morning and you eat his body and drink his blood if you will be thankful be thankful rest in God's grace look at the end of verse 20 did you notice the end God knows all things maybe he hasn't seen all my failures yeah he has (laughs) <laughs> yep he's seen him he's seen your obedience too he's, he's seen all of your lack and he's seen all of your love he's seen all of it he's seen when you do well and when you do poorly he puts your lack behind you he forgives it and your love through your love he makes Jesus known that's what this whole love section is about Christ will be known through your love for one another you can be a great witness just through loving each other. I saw a lot of that yesterday. God's great purpose for you is that you live a life of love in the church, in the community of the redeemed. You are part of a whole community of redeemed people and none of them are perfect. And you need to trust that God is greater than your heart. You love them. And let the Lord who loved you and saved you have the last word in your heart. I love you. I died for you. My death was all sufficient for you. I forgive you. Trust him. Trust him. Now looking at verse 21, we see how important it is to trust God's complete knowledge of us which in no way diminishes His grace and mercy to us either. So we have to address our sin, but not live. Address your sin, but don't live with a self-condemning heart. Living under, living under self-imposed condemnation will keep us from the very relationship that God actually wants to have with you. So when we can live joyfully in God's grace and put aside self-condemnation, these blessings follow. So for one thing, we can experience the assurance of our salvation and God's love for us. And self-condemnation robs us of that. But also, and here's where verse 21 comes in, our prayer life becomes a source of joy and power. You don't have to be afraid of going before the Lord and maybe not doing it because of your self-condemning heart. You can go before Him with great joy and pleasure. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That word confidence is a great word. It uh, means to speak freely. And in Greek culture, that word, it's a great word. It's, you, you study the origins of it. The Greeks, the Greeks believed that if you were a free person, you know, slaves didn't have this right, but if you're a free person, you had the right to say anything to anybody. <laughs> that, that was what this word was, this, this total boldness. You can go up and say, hey, you know that statue you made? It stinks. <laughs> you have that right. And they like to exercise that right greek people actually still do like to exercise that right but for a christian this word doesn't mean um being haughty like that or flippant or anything like that it it means it means does mean bold and it's talking about you going to god you can go to him boldly you can speak to him freely he's not judging you for your weaknesses or your Insufficient words or your inability to communicate well. You just go and you tell him what you think. God wants us to pray without shrinking away from him. Knowing that he hears his children. You don't go before God as a prisoner before the bar if you know Jesus. You go as his child. Little children. That's how you come to him. That's how he sees it. And as our love is exercised in the body of Christ regularly, as long as our driving passion is to please God, then our prayers, more and more our prayers start lining up with his will and being conformed to his will. And we're far more likely to see our prayers answered. Verse 22 says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, look at that. That's really something. We've been talking about love and, and all of a sudden it's about commandment keeping. <gasps> Why did he make the switch? Because they're the same thing. They're the same thing, there's no switch. It's, it is only people who see God's commandments as some kind of oppression who think that love and commandment keeping are at odds with each other. And so they're not, they're, love is commandment keeping. Verse 23, they're never at odds. This is his commandment. Okay, here it comes. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded, see love is the command. That's what, it's, that's what he's talking about. Verse 23 is one of those great verses that embody sort of the whole Christian faith in a really simple sentence, right? This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. That's it, if you're doing that right, you've got it all right. Believe in Jesus, what does that mean? Well, John's Gospel, chapter six, John 6 29 they asked Jesus they said what shall we do that we may work the works of God what great thing must we do and Jesus you remember his answer Mm -hmm. this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent that's it that's what he wants that's the center that Jesus is God's son that he is the Christ the messiah the promised king who will have dominion over the whole world. So obviously then, because that's who he is, believing in him is accepting in our hearts all the moral laws that he taught or all the things that he affirmed out of the Bible that we're, the way we're supposed to live, all areas of life, they're binding on us as duties to our king, that's, that's pretty logical. His commandments are good, his commandments are love because love, if I love you, I seek to honor the good in every way for you. That's, what, that's, what, that's my purpose. In all situations and for all people. I want what's good for you. That's what love is. And what's good for you is what God says. So I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to work for that. The second thing is love. In, in verse 23. And love one another just as he commanded us. So in verse 23 John refers to Jesus. That's the special commandment. That Jesus spoke at the last supper. That John heard with his own ears that you love one another. And what is love? Well, we, we said what it isn't. It's not, it's not a sweet syrup. It's not emotions. It's not a sweet feeling. It might bring sweet, sweet feelings. I hope your love for others does bring sweet feelings to you, but that's not what it is. What's, what's the highest form of love you can imagine? We're gonna celebrate it this morning. It's Jesus dying on the cross. Was that a sweet thing? Did he have sweet feelings that day? No. They were not sweet. They weren't sweet for his mother either while she watched. They weren't sweet for the Apostle John while he watched Jesus die on the cross. It wasn't a sweet day. What love is, love is compassion and dedication to serve God by doing what's best for other people. We'll call it a compassionate dedication. It's a compassionate dedication to serve God by doing what's best for other people. That's what love is. You can feel great sorrow and love faithfully at the same time. It's not always a sweet feeling. Now just for a bit, let's look at the final verse of chapter 3. It functions as a kind of transition into the new section in chapter 4, which we'll start on next week. But John uses this moment to introduce a, a person he hasn't talked about directly yet. And that person is the Holy Spirit. So we've talked about the Holy Spirit in 1 John because John kept using the word anointing. And we know that the anointings from the Holy Spirit, but he never mentioned the Holy Spirit directly until now. So chapter 4 is going to be very Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he hasn't done that yet. He's getting there. So he's bringing in the Holy Spirit now because he's transitioning to that. But here in verse 24, John also brings back the word abide. We've talked about abiding a lot in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 as well. Abide means to dwell with or remain with. So look at verse 24 now. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he in him. We know by this that he abides in us. Here it comes. By the Spirit whom he has given us. There's the Holy Spirit. So let's take the first part. Our abiding in Christ and his abiding in us is seen in our desire to obey his commandments. When we desire to do what he wants us to do, to live a life that's pleasing to him, we have this abiding relationship with him. So there's these two summary commandments that we had in verse 23, believe in Christ and love one another. So if we're believing in the Lord and if we're loving one another, we are abiding in Christ and he's abiding in us. Now, Notice he states the fact in verse 24 that when we do these things, believe in Christ and love one another, we are abiding in him. Now, when it comes to how we know that he abides in us, John points to something different. What does he say? That's the last line of verse 24. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given to us. That's how we know. In other words, the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. Doesn't mean he blasts out a big speech or puts banners in the sky. He, he tell his spirit in us tells our spirit. It's a deep thing that, we're, that we belong to him. Paul said it really well in Romans uh, chapter eight, verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's how you know you're a child of God. The Spirit tells you that. It's spirit to spirit. The Holy Spirit has a lot of different roles in our salvation but the one in view here is that he attests, he bears witness to our salvation. He speaks to our hearts that we love Christ and that we are secure in Christ. He tells our hearts, our spirit, that we belong to Christ and we need to hear that witness. The self-condemning heart is silencing that voice of the Spirit in you. Because you're not, you're not accepting God's truth. And so you're not listening to the Holy Spirit when He tells you that you're saved. That you're loved. That God's, God is with you. So don't ever shut down that witness. Don't quench the witness of the Spirit. By clinging to a self condemning heart when you've been forgiven. You should be living in joy and thankfulness from that reality of what Christ has done for you. So you accept a spirit's witness by believing the word of God. Trust the word of God, not your own heart. What does the Bible say about your heart? What was that Jeremiah thing? The heart is deceitful above all things. Yeah, you don't trust your heart. You, you bring the Word of God, the truth of God into your heart and let that shape your thinking and your heart. Trust the Word, not your heart. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, I believe it is, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And when you do that, this this negative thing, this self-condemning heart goes away. It starts working its way out because that's not true and you're supposed to live in the truth. Cling to the truth. Live in the truth. Rest in the truth. In the gospel of grace, that's what the truth is. God forgives. God forgives fully. God forgives completely. So lots of things can confuse us and distract us, but let the spirit through God's truth find its place in all of your thinking about yourself and about everything else that goes on around you. Because God is greater than your heart. Let's pray. Lord you know everything about us you know our faith you know our fear you know our love you know our pettiness you know all about us all that we lack is known to you and all the ways we love you is known to you so Father if we have a self condemning heart we can never know you as we should so we ask you to take that away set us free from that in the gospel of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray Amen